Hi there. Thanks very much for stopping by this week's edition of Tellage Talks. We are this week talking to Andy Baskin, longtime broadcaster in Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland Heights native, and he got his start in broadcasting after TV internships way out in Montana, Missoula, Montana to be exact. And we chronicle his career as he's gone from Montana to Columbus to Cleveland and all stops in between. In Columbus, he was at that outstanding TV station WBNS and they had a great, great sports department that he was involved in. And then up here in Cleveland doing Fox Sports News, working at Channel 3, the longtime anchor of sports at Channel 5, WEWS, and then doing radio the last eight, nine years from 10 to 2, Cleveland's Talking Heads, with he and Jeff Phelps. And our discussion was not just on his career and some of his philosophies about doing sports talk radio, but it also delved into stuff that is a bit on the personal side. His brother, several years his senior, Bruce, passed away about 15 years or so ago of cystic fibrosis. And We spoke a lot about the battles that his brother waged with that and how he was such an inspiration for uh, Andy as he was growing up and then how he keeps the honoring his brother through his work with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Also, organ donation is near and dear to Andy's heart and we talk about that as well. So multifaceted, chatting in the offices at 92.3. Just good to catch up with my old buddy. In fact, he got into the business as an intern over at our shop many, many years ago. So listen in here to Andy Baskin of 92.3, The Fan. Andy, first of all, thanks very much for being on with me. And we go back a long, long way, uh, kind of a qualifier there. Intern at Channel 8. What year was it? 1989. Late 80s. Yeah, with Mark Schrader, it was you and Schrader's. Danny had just gone down to Florida. And That's Danny Coughlin, who went to Florida for a year and hated it and came back. (laughs) Hated it. That was the understatement. We talked to him. Schrader and I would talk to him at... Uh, like two in the morning, he would call on his way home from work, and he just would ramble. Only the way that Danny could ramble. It was so much fun. I loved it. It was that was probably one of my favorite. Um, it was definitely my favorite internship, and it was probably one of the best times of my life because I was there. I was with you, and then I interned at Channel Twenty Three in Akron, and then I entered where I am now when it was ninety two Q. Wow. So I did a lot of free work when I was in college. It's kind of ironic. You're, uh, isn't the 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 receiver all the guts of ninety two three in Cleveland Heights or the licenses out of Cleveland? The licenses out of Cleveland Heights. Okay. So and when you're I, a Cleveland Heights high school grad. I, that's why I threw that. That's in. how I started because it was across the street from Heights. And, oh, okay. and I walked across the street. I was installing lawn sprinklers, and I knew what I wanted to do. And how soon did you know what you wanted to do? How uh, young were you? Uh, I think my freshman year. I knew I was wanting to do radio. Okay. I never TV was never really on my mind. And the only reason I did TV was because there was a buddy of mine named Tom Lawler, and we both lived on the same floor at Kent, and we saw a bunch of guys going over to audition for TV2 at Kent. And we were like, Tom. Who are these losers? Who are these guys? I'm telling you, I think we can do this. And we walked in, and uh, we both got our first pick of our slots that we wanted, and we beat out a bunch of people. And I just was like... How competitive was it? Uh, there were a lot of kids there. I want to say there were probably 40 or 50 kids for ten there, for the sports spots. There was only five. There were 10. And, and five were already taken because it was part of reporting class. So they got to do... They did two newscasts a night. And one was for regular students that wanted to be a part of it or were journalism students. And then the other were for taking those classes. And we both got really, really lucky. Uh, Mark Nolan was on. I did the same Mark show Nolan. with Mark Nolan. Yeah. Wow. So you were on the air with him. He, yeah. Were you the sport? He was the sports guy. He was the news. I don't, dude he might or... have been doing sports one night, or he was doing because I did weather there too. I did what we did. You had to do weather and news. You had to do everything. It was fun. It kind of a good uh, gave you a nice taste for what m- there might be out there. But did you know when you graduated from there that you wanted to be a sports anchor? Yeah. Uh, and no. you and you made the move out to uh, I went to Montana. Montana. Yeah. I, well, I remember meeting Phelps in like 89 and Jeff came in and he was in the studio. We were at TV2 at Kent State and it was this little dump. And I was like, wow, that's Jeff Phelps. There's a guy who went to school here and got a job. 
And he was working at 43 with Ron Yelts at the time and Gibb. Um, and I remember asking him, you know, how'd you do it? And he, I remember him saying to me, I think he sent out, I, I'll ask him tomorrow when I see him, but I think he sent out over a hundred tapes. Sounds very familiar. Yeah. And, you know, and then I saw guys like you when I, I knew you went to Buffalo. Buffalo wasn't your I went first. to, uh, but my first job was out in South Dakota. So we're kind oh, of similar right. that's right. in that we went way the hell away from Cleveland. Yeah. I remember leaving for Montana after I got my first job and my mom was in tears. And <laughs> I went out there with a buddy of mine named Andy Anderson and Andy, uh, didn't he didn't graduate from OU? He decided he wanted to ski. So <laughs> well, you're in Montana. I was so lucky to have somebody move all the way across the country with me because I don't know if I would have made it if he hadn't moved out there with me. Well, I had someone to move out. That was my new bride at the time. My you wife had just got married. We had just got married, and literally, I was working for three four weeks at this brand new station in South Dakota, Rapid City. Flew back to Long Island, got married, and brought the bride back the next day. Well, Saturday was the wedding. Sunday, we were back on a plane to South Dakota. I just started the job. We had no vacation. So, oh, my God. So the honeymoon was in Rapid City, South So did Dakota. you go? You went South Dakota to Buffalo? South Dakota to Buffalo. I did like one year of like, I, I did radio all through college at Ashland, but I did one year of radio in Mansfield and Ashland in between graduating in 75 and then the next summer getting a job in South Dakota. Wow. So you were at Ashland when the great Steve Taringo was playing football there. I don't know if you know Steve. He's the defensive coordinator at uh, Kenston now. But I, I'm always impressed like by Ashland and what Ashland – like I don't yeah. – people, people uh, from an athletic standpoint, I don't know if they give Ashland enough credit. Like people don't – you know, play D2 yeah. now and to go down there and see the facilities down there and – um, well, Lee Owens has yeah. uh, done a great job there. You know, the coach of the the Packers, Lafleur, right. was a was an assistant there. So a lot of people have come through that. And the facilities are really and nice. They're phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think it's a hidden gem. I think, it if you it ask is. Me. But uh, quit talking about me. We uh, gotta I don't talk, really about, talk about you. I don't care. <laughs> All matter. right. So you're in you're in Montana. How are you learning the business? I mean, and and how that was a lot of fun. Wasn't so it? the first part of the the thing is funny. I had a I, I was talking to Alpena, Michigan. I was coaching hockey at Shaker. I just graduated from Kent. I was bartending at a place called Norton's on Cedar. Um, and that was like the forerunner to like TGI Fridays and all those places. And I remember getting yelled at for being a bartender there because I'd never been one. My roommate at the time, or my roommate in college used to make strawberry daiquiris, okay? And he used to make them with vanilla ice cream. Now this guy owns really? a b- pretty big wing chain right now. Uh, Daryl so Bornello's name, but he taught me how to make daiquiris, but they were with vanilla ice cream, and that's what I thought. So I had been bartending at Norton's. I was driving to WRRO in, in Warren to do weekends because Mark Nolan got me the job. So what happened was what's air, weird. Dude, that's the great thing. You get on the air and you get that taste. So what's what's crazy is I interned for you guys, and then my internship was over, and then I became friends with Mark Nolan at Kent. And he was looking for an internship, and I called you guys. You ended up taking Mark as an intern. And then Mark helped me get a job in Warren uh, at a radio station, which was still on, like, records <laughs> in 90. And you had to queue up the records and play them. You had to push bums out of the way to get into the studio. So wait, so now I'm working in, I'm working at Norton's. I'm coaching hockey, and I'm doing radio on the weekends. Uh, and I was 21, almost 22 years old. And... I remember um, I was maybe I was 22, almost 23, and then I'm coaching hockey at Shaker, and I get called off the ice because I know um, there was a news director that was going to call me from Montana, so I got that call. But before I got that call, I got a call from Alpena, Michigan, okay. and the news director from Alpena, Michigan said, "Hey, we want to hire you to be our weekend sports guy." I said, "Oh my God, that's great! I had no other offers. I had nothing else going on." And she was like, this is going to be great. You'll come up to Alpena. I'm like, wow, that's not really that far away. That's cool. This is going to be awesome. And she said to me, "Um, you're going to be our weekend sports guy. That means you're going to have to go out and shoot, write, and edit all your own stuff for the weekends. I'm like, no problem. I was planning on doing that. No problem. She said, also, before you are doing the sports on the weekend, we do a 15-minute sports cast, 15-minute newscast. You'll do seven of it in sports. Seven minutes for sports? So that she was said, pre-consultants. That's right. She said, you'll do seven minutes for sports. I need you to do about a minute and a minute and a half of weather. That's so fantastic. she's like, you'll be the weekend weather person. and But, but more important, you are our primary, or I'm sorry, you are our secondary sports person at the station, and you are our weekend sports anchor. I go, well, that's great. I'm, I'm excited. I, you know, whatever. You probably need. had the wooden boards, uh, the, you, yeah. know, you know, not nothing uh, 
you know, computer. No, are you uh, kidding? No, you boards with numbers you put on. Numbers? Are you kidding? It was a magic marker probably with <laughs> USA Today, and you just stole the, the temperatures off there. So she said, you're the weekend sports anchor. I need you to do weather for like 90 seconds. I go, that's great. She goes, oh, and by the way, um, uh, I need you to do news too on the weekend show. I go, oh, what do you mean? And she's like, well, well you'll be it, doing. You know, write it and oh, deliver it. Write it, anchor it, do the weather, do the sports. But you're the weekend sports guy. I go, so wait a second, I just want to make sure. It's news, weather, and sports. And it's a 15-minute show. And does anybody help you with the show? No, you got it. You'll be by yourself. I said, hey, whatever it takes, I really want this job. This is great. She goes, all right, I'll call you back on Monday, and we'll hammer out the details. And I said, okay, great. Well, then I got the call. I was coaching at Shaker, and I got the call from Missoula. And the guy whose name was Ian Marquand, and he was a huge Dave Logan fan. Oh, the former bronze receiver in Colorado. And... We started talking. I was like, oh, my God, I play tight end because of Dave Logan, blah, 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 whatever. And he said, uh, he goes, hey, we want to make our weekend sports guy. I go, oh, my God, that's great. Are you serious? What, you know, University of Montana, one uh, yeah. AA school. Oh, my, that'll be amazing. And I said, do I have to do weather? <laughs> and he said, why would you do weather? You're a weekend sports guy. I go, what about news? Well, I have to do news, too. <laughs> and he said, only on Mondays and Tuesdays at noon, you'll be our noon anchor. I said, you got it. So I moved out to Missoula. I was out there for five years, and uh, that's really where I cut my teeth. And I learned everything. I learned everything. What did you think you knew when you got there? I thought I knew the, everything to, uh, there was to do about being on television, and, and I was so raw, so bad. Oh, what I th- did you think you knew? Okay, I thought I knew a lot about pro sports. Okay. And I thought that that really mattered. And that didn't mean anything in Missoula. Not in Missoula. They didn't care <laughs> Other about Other than anything. the university. <laughs> you know, if you you were lucky if you threw the Seahawks highlights in on a Sunday night or the Broncos highlights in on a Sunday night. I know that if, like I said, my buddy Andy Anderson had moved out there with me, I'm not kidding. My first week at that station, I threw up every night. I was so nervous. And I was so scared. And uh, I was ready to come home after I was just going to say, were you at that point where you, you were literally calling Al, yeah, it was, Al Baskin and saying, Dad? <laughs> I was like, Dad. And, but meanwhile, my parents had floated me a bunch of money so I could get clothes to move out there. So I wasn't about to turn around. And I was three days away from home. It wasn't, yeah, it like, wasn't like you hop on a plane or you, know, you drive four hours in your home. But it was a, the greatest experience. And, and once, beautiful. Oh, my Lord. You just can't eat the mountains. That was the problem. I think I, I qualified for free cheese. As far as money that I did, was you get doing. it? I would, I didn't have the guts to do it. Um, but it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. I got to do play by play. I was the voice of the Montana Lady Grizz basketball team, which was probably the best experience I ever had. Uh, Robin Selvig was the coach, and I don't know. I always think back that we had another guy that was at Fox Eight, or was wasn't even Fox Eight back then. It was, yeah, it was WJKW back in the eighties, yeah. and it was so there CBS. Was, there was Greg Heister. Greg was Heister is, is made a phenomenal name for himself yeah. in the outdoors world. Right, and so he was. We were the. He went out to. Was he? He went to Alaska. He went to Spokane, I and, think. Yeah, and then he went that. to Spokane. Ended up marrying an anchor who was in Missoula when I was in Missoula. A girl named Laura Petty. I don't know if that's still. Meister's an Ashland guy. We've yeah. And so it was just this really weird mix. But the thing about Spokane that was interesting, it was the reason I was able to come home. Because, and I don't know if you worked with him, there was a guy named Paul Doogie. I don't know if you remember Paul. Paul was a, I, I, Paul was an assistant news director. He was at Channel 8. No, he was at Channel 3 for sure. And what was weird was the weather guy in Missoula <laughs> that I was friends with um, took a job in Spokane as a weather guy. And so I drove over to see him, and he goes, hey, you might want to meet our news director. I go, oh, okay, I'll go and meet him. And his name is Paul Doogie. And um, I got in his office, and I look, and he's got, like, WKYC AP awards and all these things. And I'm like, wow, how long were you in Cleveland? And we talked for an hour and a half that first time I met him. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is awesome. I'm going to get hired in Spokane. And he never hired me. And I'm like, oh, I thought I really had a chance. He ended up going to WBNS in Columbus. And then that's how <clears throat> he hired me at WBNS from Missoula. Okay. And so that's how I ended up back in Columbus in 95. And so, and Doogie was just, he was great. He was great to me, but I was working on a staff with Mike Gleason, really well-respected play-by-play guy, yep. who was our main guy. Jay Crawford, Jay who's Crawford now over at Channel, Channel 3. 3. Yep. Um, but Jay was at ESPN for years and was you in got, Tampa for a while. You guys used Herbie as an expert. Herbie was one of our, and Dom Tiberi, who's the yeah. legend who's there now. So, and Ryan Miller was with us at the time, former, former linebacker. Yeah, mm-hmm. so really was a great staff. I mean, amazing. And the technical guys that we had, a guy named Matt Shedden, who won like every award for videography. 
and uh, and Dave Syrak was kind of an ops co- uh, kind of an ops photog guy who I still think is down in Florida. Who and was then just Moose was magic. there through all this, right? Yeah, and we had a guy who just won a huge just, award. I think he did. Did he just retire? Paul? Yeah, he Moose, just. Moose yeah, and so I mean that might have been one of the best local sports staffs ever. I think it. We had a great one in the early '80s and in mid to late '80s, but I I totally would agree because they had they had great reporters, but then they had staff dedicated just for sports. Yeah. Shooters, editors. We kind of have always been in the use the news editors and, and news and news photographers and news editors at Channel Eight. That's just right. been how how we we go. But okay, you uh, you made the jump over to Columbus before I had a chance to ask, but oh. I'm glad you did because that, sure. that's perfect. What was it like? The it's so Buckeye Buckeye everything. What was it like just covering the Buckeyes and how did, how different is that than covering the Browns who own Cleveland? Um. Uh, just everything is so much more structured. I think with Ohio State when I was down there, it was like everything was timed. You know, so you knew when you had access to the athletes because the athletes were also students. So yeah. it wasn't the the pressure isn't the same. It wasn't the same as a news director saying, "Hey, we're hearing somebody's out at Dave and Buster's. Go out there and talk to him." Like you would never do that to a student. You would, yeah. and so and if you did, so Ohio you worked State around would, those structured hours. If you didn't, yeah. they, you would they they would know and you would hear about. And it. And we were in a really really good place because WBNS had a great relationship with Ohio State. And I'm telling you, Paul Spawn Moose knew every knows and knew yeah. every Buckeye that's ever existed. Yeah. And when it came time to breaking big stories and having access to stuff, Moose had everything. You know, and it was um. It was really a, a great place just as far as learning on how to build relationships. Moose was the greatest at that. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I went to Channel 5 and, you know, Moose was a sports director at WBNS and there were days I'd wonder why he made decisions and sometimes I was frustrated and mad. And then when I went to Channel 5 and became sports director and had people, I don't ever want to say working for me, but, I know what you mean. but yeah. sometimes you've got to be the boss. Yeah. And I would call Moose and I'd be like, I don't understand. And how do I deal with this? And I, I'll really, and I would go back <clears throat> and tell him about circumstances that we had in Columbus. And I was, I'm, I would be like, you know, at the time I had no idea what you were doing, but it made so much sense right now. And were you guys fighting for time? Were you, you know, young guy trying to really make your mark five years out of M- Missoula, Montana? I'm an Ohio kid. I want to really show the world that I can be a great reporter, anchor guy. So you were fighting for airtime or, oh, or I was, was fight- it quite, I was. quite democratic in, in how Moose parceled it out. No, Moose had a great, I mean, Moose, you know, when Paul hired me, I thought it was going to be doing something a little bit different than what I was. Okay. And I went from doing everything in Montana. I was the voice of the Grizzlies for football on TV. I was, you know, doing play-by-play for basketball. I was doing everything. I had a radio show there. And then all of a sudden I went to Columbus and I was the number four guy. And you weren't shooting, you know, right? Well, I would, it was weird because I would shoot in I would shoot in Missoula, and then I went to Columbus, and we had all these photographers. You didn't really need to shoot. No, but there were stories that I wanted to do, and we didn't have photographers. And I'm like, can I just take a camera and go? And they were like, no. You know, there but was Moose, a hierarchy, a pecking order, yeah, kind of thing. I, I went from a newsroom that was in the, um, it was in a garage. I mean, we were a furniture <laughs> store that they turned into a TV station, and we had like six people, and now I suddenly am working at it's a big newsroom, yeah, sports then, office. I, we had like. 15 live trucks. At one point, we had two helicopters. Yeah. You guys had everything. We had really every did. toy. The Wolves were the greatest people to work for. Yeah. There was no expense. I, there were, there was a time, I think, right after I left. And they've just sold yeah. BNS to a, another company. Yeah. There was a time after I left, there was covering a national championship. And I think they flew the entire station to Arizona in 02. Well, I was there for, for Channel 8, and I can remember you guys, first of all, you rented the top of a hotel or some building. Right. You set up a bit, giant set that overlooked Sun Devil Stadium. Right. And, you know, you didn't just go half, you know what. You no. You went full. All in. All the time. Now, I was already at Fox by the time that happened, and I got to go to the game as a fan, which was amazing in itself. But um, being at, at BNS, I learned a lot about how to do things the right way. Yeah. And how to have a company that not only believed in um, what we were doing, but they believed in doing it ethically, I thought. And that, you know, we didn't... They had to stem from the family. Yeah. I mean, it, you that, know, it, it wasn't just a haphazard edict or mandate. It, it it had to come from the type of people that they were or are. And I think that's what we're missing now in local news, especially. And, and just taking two seconds to think about what you're saying and making sure you have two sources before you say it. And 
there was never a day that I ever questioned the ethics of anybody at, at BNS ever. I, they came to work. They were all people that had worked in other markets. No one was breaking breaking in at BNS. Yeah. And um, yeah, you had to earn your chops elsewhere to, yeah. in order to get. And I don't think they even looked uh, um, askance at the fact that you had you were out in Montana. They looked more at you what you're capable of doing. Right. It didn't matter where you were. Right. They wanted a good reporter, good anchor, and that's why you got hired. It wasn't because you came from Seattle and we're gonna, you know, put you. It was because of what you did. Right. In and a small I, market. And I was doing everything there. And I and you know uh, I remember like Crawford and I used to have battles left and right because we were doing things I just didn't know how to do. I was Crawford's, so I was a, a part-time reporter basically, mm-hmm. and Jay Crawford was the weekend anchor at the <clears> time, and so I was producing for Jay and. You know, there were times when Jay just, um, Jay and I, Jay is one of my best friends now in this business, and there were times that we just went toe-to-toe. But he made me a better reporter. He made me a better producer. He definitely made me a better producer. Um, and there were a lot of really great things that I learned from him, and, you know, look where he ended up going that, and then look where I ended up coming back. Right. You know, coming back home and working for Fox, which was another, you know, I was... There was a time when I was um, when I was working in Columbus before I came back home, <clears throat> and a real good buddy of mine who I grew up with, his name was Joe Pastor. And okay. we, I don't know if you remember, but during the playoffs in the 90s, you know, you would have to run stuff. I'm sure you remember this. That we would have to run stuff when I was working for Channel 10 from the from the clubhouse back to the truck, so they could uplink it to yeah. get it back to Columbus, yeah. so you could talk about so you could it throw on throw air. To it. Right. So I brought a buddy of mine in. And his name is Joe Pastor. Um, he's still around town here. And I said, Joe, can you help me out? I'll get you a credential for the playoffs. I need someone runner. to run. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, no problem. So I did a live shot. <clears throat> it was good, but it was. I got chopped in half because there was breaking news, and I was I was kind of bummed out about it. Yeah. And I was walking up and down, and he was just sitting in the dugout. And I looked back at him. <clears throat> excuse me. And I, I said, um, Hey, you all right? You good? He goes. Yeah, I'm good. I go, what do you? I, he goes, huh? He goes. He looked at me and he goes, "Why are you so stressed out?" I go, oh, "I got cut in half and I was hoping for something else." And he goes, "Dude, we grew up here. Where are we right now?" Yeah. And I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "We are sitting in the dugout at Jacobs Field, and we were just in the locker room after a playoff game. This does not suck." And I was like, you know what? You're right, Joe. And then after that, I, I always thought about that when Great I got lesson. to cover stuff. Yeah, because you get you get caught up in this whole being a broadcaster and being a reporter, and you forget who you were, kind of, and where you came from. So um, it was it was it was a great moment. It really was. So you're in Columbus. How did you reconcile the fact that these kids, these 18, 19, 20 year old kids, are put up on such high pedestals? For the people of Columbus and Central, in, in Ohio, it's just love the Buckeyes. How, how did you reconcile that as a reporter and, and trying to keep things real? Um, you know, I think for me, it wasn't because we had Crawford and we had Gleason and we had Herb Street. I really went out of my way to cover non, non-big sports stuff. So yeah. <clears throat> my favorite things to do there w- was hockey with John Markle, who was the sure. head coach at the time. Um, I love covering hockey because I grew up playing hockey and played hockey. Um, I did a lot of stuff with the gymnastics team, Peter Corman, who was the head of the national team. And I, I really got to know people who were doing things other than football or other than, you know, basketball. Although I became, you know, I knew Jim O'Brien, I, you know, Paul Biancardi was there, uh, Rick Boyages. We, there was a good run, you know, a little bit of Randy Ayers. Um, and I, I got to know, you know, a lot of those guys. But I also got to know Coop. I was excited to hear that um, Fred Pogic is, is – Hopefully now the with Browns. the Browns. Yeah. And, you know, he was a guy that I would go to practice when we could go to practice, and you would watch him yeah. because he was so intense. And he was like, he was the guy you always thought was was a football coach. Yeah, he, and to sit there and watch Fred Pugic, you know, yell at the linebackers back in the day, that, that's why you'd want to go to practice. He was probably yelling at, like, Pepper Johnson or someone like that. Yeah, when we were there, it was probably, like, um, Jerry Radzinski or Ryan Miller at the time okay. or uh, Mike Vrabel, oh, right. those guys. It was the end of the Cooper Okay. Right there. So um, to see those guys, it was just it was it was neat. But when I was in Columbus, I went out of my way to do the stories that nobody else was doing. The stories that were hard to do, 
not the easy stuff where you just took a press release and and got some sound and mm-hmm. we talked to Joe Germain today. You know that that stuff was easy. Right. Going to talk to John Markle or setting up something with Beth Burns, who was the women's basketball coach at the time. Mm-hmm. You know those were those took a little effort, and so I love doing those stories. And it was kind of cool that you had the staff that was big enough for you to be able to uh, to delve into that because I would imagine the other stations didn't have the staff. Number one or the resources, number two, and, and to devote time to do those types of stories that they probably got overlooked at some of the other stations. A, a lot of the I'm stuff... I'm generalizing well, here. I'll tell you, a lot of the stuff you saw at ESPN, I think Jay took a lot of that stuff. The, the whole embrace debate thing, to Barry and Crawford were doing that. Like, we had a wall for wall-to-wall yeah, sports. Yeah, wall-to-wall sports. Mm-hmm. And they, one guy, and I don't know that they did it very many times, but they put a clock up and... Dom took one side and Jay took the other. It's almost PTI. It was PTI 20 years before PTI, and they would argue. And I think part of it was because Dom was also doing radio in the morning, and Jay was just Jay could argue with anybody about anything. So, um, and to me, I looked at those moments and I'm like, when ESPN started doing, it, I'm like, I've seen this before. <laughs> you know, I've yeah. seen all this stuff before. Um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was amazing. It really was. So great run in Columbus. You come. Uh, to your hometown, big right. news for Al Baskin and the family, oh, and the friends. The dream. And and how did you how did you land at Channel Five and and you know s- sum those years up if you can. What's crazy is I did six years at Fox Sports before that, and so Tony Burke, who was working. Tony Channel, Burke's a great yeah. friend of ours. So Tony was working at Channel 19, and Tony was a big Ohio State fan, and Tony and I were sharing video every weekend, talking back and forth when I was in Columbus, and the opportunity came. Uh, we started a show called Ohio Sports Report, which I loved doing. Yeah. That show was great. And there were only four of us. It was Tony, me, Carrie Sayers, who's in Chicago now, yes, um, Chris Madden, and Jeff Platts. And we were the Cleveland office. Jeff was a shooter. Yeah. yeah. And then we had Dan DeCrow, who was our anchor in Chicago. Jim Day, who's now the play-by-play I remember play when voice. that show, yeah. when, when you guys came on the scene. And we ran it hard. I mean, we were doing stories that nobody, like, the, I remember going to Ashland to do a story. And because it was just, we were doing stories about, you know, at Youngstown State. And we were doing Wendy's High School Heisman stories. And we did a lot of stuff there. And it was a great show. We were number two in the chain. We were drawing ratings that are probably better than, than most local shows right now after Indians and Cavs games. And we were on immediately following the game. And um, 18 months in, Cablevision, who owned us at the time, decided they were going to pull the plug on it. It was too expensive. But still, we had that. We were the <clears throat> highest-rated show in the country behind Seattle. Seattle kind of kept their show um, going a little bit longer than us. But what they learned was, and what Steve Leverani and, and Tom Farmer learned, who were at Fox Ohio at the time, was that we could keep viewers after the games. And so out of that, um, the Ohio, out of the Ohio Sports Report became all these postgame shows, the Conrad postgame shows. And um, so I was unbelievably lucky. And so I ended up traveling with the Indians uh, for six years and the Cavs for four and a half when LeBron got here. Um, and I also had the opportunity to coach high school hockey at the time. And that, I mean, that was as close to being as a, a pro as I was ever going to get. Mm-hmm. You know, we were on the team plane. Um, you really got to know the guys. I really got to know the Indians of that generation um, and made a lot of really good friends. People have to know the difference between what you were, you were somewhat embedded. Yes, exactly. Teamish yeah. versus local news team that, you know, were there with the sports writers from the Plain Dealer and all the other outlets, but were not embedded. So people right. should understand that. Sometimes I think the line <clears throat> gets blurry for, for people that perceive like, Someone who's embedded with the team has different relationships. It's MLB.com. It's the same way. MLB.com has great information, but you got to remember it's MLB. They still work for MLB. Although I will say, like Mandy does a great job. Oh, there Mandy now. and Jordan did, yeah. and yeah, yeah I mean, and they're all they're all really good writers. But again, you got to you got to remember where they work. Um, so uh, we did that. I did that for five years and and had or five or six years and had a great run at that. And then um, Sports Time Ohio started. And it kind of divided what we had at Fox, Ohio, and then over there. And so then I ended up at Channel 3 for a year, which a lot of people seem to forget. But I did um, I did the Indians pregame show over there. I mean, I did Indians pregame for six years. And um, that was the dream job, you know. Wasn't, you know, and I wasn't married at the time, too. I think that was, that was a big difference. So then by the time I got to the end of my run at Fox Sports, Ohio, and 
Channel 3, I was already married. And we already had our first kid. And our second kid was uh, coming when I went to Channel 5 uh, as soon as I started there. And so, you know, I had, I had almost 10 great years, 10 great years at Channel 5. And I met a lot of great people and still have a lot of great friends over there. So And uh, iconic shop in the sense yeah. that if, if you're listening to this and aren't familiar as much with local news or Cleveland local news, two of the greatest sportscasters this town's ever known, Gibb and Nev, I mean, says it all right there. And you were sitting in the same chair in, yeah. in essence. Well, and kind I, of a thrill in that respect. Well, I got to work with Gibb um, because John Butte, who hired me over there, um, you know, Gibb was still there and he was just coming in on Sundays and he was cutting an editorial. And I don't even know if they was getting paid for it. And we had a lot of talks. Um, and I got to know Gibb's wife at the time and mm-hmm. she just passed away. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Gibb taught me a lot. Gibb taught me... Don't worry about all the BS. Don't worry about it. Just go to work, do your job, and be great at it. So he was Bill Belichick before Belichick. Yeah, he, <laughs> and he did something for me that no one had ever done. Um, when John Butte was trying, because I wasn't full time when I started at Channel Five, and John Butte at the time said to Gib, "Hey, what do you think about Andy as a sports director here? You know, he's been filling in, he's been doing a good job." And Gib goes, "What do I think?" And he goes, "Yeah, what do you think?" He goes. You should have hired him three weeks ago full-time. And when Gibbs said that, I, like, I still get Jill's thinking about that because to me that was like the – that was – man, that was the king that said that. Was, that, you know? that was being knighted. Yeah, it really was. You know. So and, – and to be able to say that I sat in Nev's chair and in Gibbs' chair, it was just – it was uh, it was something special. It was great. And, you know, I, I have memories of that for a lifetime. And now the environment that you kind of live in is sports talk radio. And it's – it's eclectic. It changes each and every day, and so I'm kind of curious because you 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 are a guy that plots out how the show goes. How do you make that sausage? What's what's the keys to make it you know a, a good show? What? Well, that's I mean that a lot of it is just you know Jeff and I hosted that pregame show for the Indians for years for five years, and um, you know Jeff and I already had chemistry going into the show, so we got really lucky because I auditioned with. I already got hired, and I auditioned with probably seven or eight different people. Okay. And at the last minute, they said, hey, what do you think of Jeff Phelps? And I go, oh, my God, it's easy. Yeah. And we never even did an audition. We just – he started the second week of the station, and so we just started going after that. Um, a lot of the sausage is done by, you know, the producers do a ton of it, I'll be honest with you. It's um, – you know, Dan Manigan does an amazing job right now, and we've been really, really lucky to have um, good producers all the way through this show all the way through and i mean they're truly the backbone and you know jeff and i will talk for 45 minutes to an hour before every show and producers are always lining up stuff to figure out what we're going to do or who we're going to interview or or what's next and um you know we spend a good hour hour and a half every day before the show getting Mm -hmm. ready for the show just talking about what's hot what's not and trying to be interesting to as many people as we can if you had your druthers to do a show where you plotted it all out Andy, and had your hour pre-show to kind of discuss how things could go or a show where just all kinds of stuff hits the fan you know breaking news all over in sports wouldn't you choose the breaking oh, news? every day of the week every day i would do the breaking news the day lebron came back okay you that know was a tw- 2014 that was an afternoon or right. late morning well it was it happened during a 2020 <laughs> anthony limo jeff was sitting here i was sitting here and you're sitting where anthony was and all of a sudden and it was funny to hear what anthony said after the fact um he had just looked at his computer before he was going to start his 2020, and he goes like this, breaking news. And so we hit the breaking news thing, and he goes, LeBron James is coming back. And I was like, where's he getting this, this from? This better be solid, dude. And if he got <laughs> – I mean, he could – someone could have put up a fake banner so from Sports easy. Illustrated. So easy to but do. he was the first one that said it, and it was instant. It was as soon as – it couldn't have been more than five or six seconds after Sports Illustrated had said he was coming back. Anthony was right there, and he said it, and Jeff and I were like – Oh my God, this is real. And then for the next hour, hour, and it was euphoria. It was like we had won a World Series, or we had won the NBA title, or a Super Bowl. Um, I I love doing breaking news. I love it, and I really like it when you have people in different positions. That's why I like doing pre and post game shows more than than anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know the grind some nights of doing a six and eleven. Sure. It's not a grind. I mean, you're still talking sports, but a lot of stuff's popping up. Yeah. But you're weighing, you're sifting through it. You're kind of like you're at the side of the creek, and you got a few couple nuggets that look like they might yield a few bucks right and then there's a bunch of other crap and and you're still putting that in the show because 
you're hoping something better comes along. Right. But then, I think I mean, you would agree. I mean, wouldn't you rather do a World Series pre or post game show than, than do a six or eleven? I love those shows. Well, I did the uh, you know the Cavs pregame for all those years with uh, Red Guy and yeah. and the the late Bill Needle. Yeah. That was all ad lib, but we'd meet, we'd set up you know the bullet points. We had a great producer, uh, and it was just here, you're hitting this tape now. Here's your countdown. All the time, just ad-libbing into everything. It was wonderful. That was the beauty, though. Isn't that the beauty of working for Fox or working for SDO? And the other thing was they look at you kind of funny when you walk in there and you say, hey, do we have a teleprompter? Because those guys are in a production world and we're in a news world. Yeah, we're ad-libbing. Yeah, but I know what you're saying. The news news people probably would freak out uh, in terms of not having something to work off of, whereas us in sports – a lot of times what we do is ad-lib. You're doing the highlights, you're ad-libbing. You see the video, you know who made the plays, you can accentuate the whatever. You do that because it's it's material you know. But the news anchors, when the stuff's written for them, they have to come up to speed before they go on the air with it. So if you all of a sudden said, we're taking the prompt away, dude, good luck, they would probably have some anxiety. Whereas... I know Jimmy Donovan doesn't use a script. No, he does. and the year I worked with him, I was always like, he would have like seven words, and he would go out there and do three minutes off the top of his head. And I can have nights where I'll just say, here's the five stories, or, hey, there's nothing written before this. Okay, give me about 10 seconds. I'll ad-lib something. You'll know when to roll. You know, so we're kind of more familiar with that, whereas I think when you're doing it as a news anchor, you need that teleprompter in some respects. It, like when I was in Columbus, we never used to write out shot sheets. Like we would just do... We would be like, you know, Indians against the White Sox tonight. It would say that at the top of the script, and they would roll the video. And when you said the score, they would go on to the next piece of video. And when I went to Channel 5, everyone was writing everything out. And I was like, why are we writing everything out? And then I realized, you know, if you're hearing impaired, that's how they were getting the script. And so that kind of made me start to say, you know what, maybe I should write everything out. And just thinking about somebody who might be hearing impaired. That was the only reason why I, I kind of jumped in full force with like, all right, I'll write everything out. That's kind of nice yeah. that you think in those those terms, because even though we do write things, like for the most part, uh, you, you you just laugh your head off. If you oh. see some of these hearing impaired, how they type it out. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just, how did he come up with that when you said, you know, the Cavs shot 52% and it comes out 52 chickens and you know yeah, what I mean? or, or the cats the, the cats shot the, the, yeah <laughs> so that's crazy um well you've had a, a phenomenal run and I, i'm always interested in in terms of how that sausage gets made you love a good debate yeah. how how do you know when to get out of a debate when you it's oh we've kind of milked this thing and we're not getting fresh points of view let's go on to the next, next commercial <laughs> commercial helps a lot um jeff and i kind of have a look we know when to stop okay um jeff and i, I mean, there are a lot of times where Jeff will say something, and I'll look at him and be like, do you really believe what you're saying? And he does. And I'll come back, and I'll be like, well, all right, we'll do this. The great thing about our show is, and there are times when Jeff and I legitimately have real debates. Sure. And sometimes I might get a little angry with him, and he gets a little angry with me. But when we walk out the door, we're Jeff and Andy friends that have been friends for years. It'd be the same way as if you and I did the same show. Oh, absolutely. And that's why at the end of the show we play, there's a – Jeff and I laugh because there's a thing where – and now I can't remember what he says – all right, good night, Fred. Or he says good night. It's the it's the coyote and the it's not the coyote and the roadrunner, but it's the coyote and somebody else. And it's these two guys that have to chase each other all day. That's their job, and then they clock out at the end. That's why we play that at the end of our show. Because Jeff and I would always say, "Do you remember that cartoon?" And so that's why that's the end of our show. Well, at least you're it's not. It's the cartoon. You're not suing Acme like there's. No. Have you ever read some guy wrote an article for the New Yorker about someone's filing like the coyote is filing a lawsuit against (laughs) the acme company it's pretty funny um all right this is kind of a quick twist from you know more of an upbeat thing um about 15 years ago your brother uh passed away due to uh, a long battle how long was he dealing well you know in terms of cystic fibrosis which my brother had people would say well how long did he live and he made it to 46 um, and they're like, oh and my was, God, that's was a that long 06 time. that he passed? What, he what, passed um, in 05. He 05. passed, yeah, he passed two months before my daughter was born. So my daughter's actually named for my brother. So um, it, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, we spent our whole lives with that. But if you knew my brother, you never really knew he had cystic fibrosis. He never, he was super successful, graduated from law school, um, uh, you know, unbelievably 
um, talented when it came to finances and and working for the he became partner of the financial investment firm that he worked for. So you know, it, cystic fibrosis is one of those weird diseases where unless someone tells you they have it, you may not know that they do. And how did he cope? Um, he was the, the difference between my brother and I. Like my brother was a pitcher and I was a catcher, and he was nine years older than me. But if you ever wanted to define the difference between my brother and I, you know, I'm the the sloppy one who's dirty and just wants to do the work and just doesn't doesn't always have to look pretty. And there, maybe sometimes there isn't a lot of thought put into it. My brother was meticulous. He was um, super organized, at least as far as I'm concerned that he was super. I'm sure there are people probably might question that somewhat. But um, he just, you know, and when you're on cystic fibrosis, the pills you take, you've got to be on a regimen. It's amazing to me how... You know, anybody I've met, any of the kids that have had cystic fibrosis or a lot of people I've met with CF seem to be um, intellectually above me, I would say. That there's there's something about being someone who lives with cystic fibrosis where you have to push yourself and you have to be organized and you have to be, um, I, I don't know, I just, I'm intelligent. Like mm-hmm. most people I meet with cystic fibrosis are really intelligent people. I, I, it's, it's just me. I, I notice it, and um, I don't know. I don't know if it's because the battle that they fight every day, you know, we take breathing for granted, and people with cystic fibrosis are dealing with, you know, drawing a breath of air through a straw. Um, but we've made unbelievable strides since my brother passed away. They've come in up with the, the science of it. Yes. And then obviously fundraising is a yeah. big part. But, yeah. but what, what, uh, what developments have come forward? Uh, drug and drug research. Um, you know, they, they came out with a drug called Kaleidico. Um, for, first of all, they discovered the gene that had cystic fibrosis. And there's a doctor here in town named Mitch Drum, okay. who is, I mean, this guy is, to me, when I look at him, he's an Einstein of our generation. And he would probably be really mad that I said that. But when you look at what they're doing at university hospitals and what he's done with Rainbow and Case Western, as far as research and development and genetic mm-hmm. testing and how to um, uh, how to attack things like not only cystic fibrosis but sickle cell and all these other diseases that are you know gene based, that he's come up with things that are amazing. So he was at Michigan and he worked with the doctor. And I think I have the story 100% right. I could be a little off, but he was at Dr. Drum was at Michigan and he. Um, developed and found the gene with another person who was working at Michigan. So luckily they were able to bring him back to case and they've come up with all kinds of just studies and research so that we went from cystic fibrosis when my brother was born was a genetic killer. If you made it past eight, you were super lucky, eight to 10. And a lot of kids were dying at the time and they thought they had pneumonia. So luckily Bruce was born here in Cleveland where Rainbow was way above the curve. Um, and he had great doctors like Dr. Enfield and Dr. Boat and all these guys that helped him maintain a healthy lifestyle and as normal a lifestyle as you possibly could have. In fact, my brother wrote a chapter in a book called Cystic Fibrosis in the 20th Century, and he talks about one key moment where my parents had the choice to treat my brother like he was a handicapped child or he was a regular kid. And my parents chose the regular kid because they didn't want my brother to think that, you know, he's going to have to work for this and, and they were going to have to work for it too. And, um, and my brother always thanked them for that, for not, you know, saying, Oh, Bruce can't do this. Bruce can't play football because he has cystic fibrosis. Bruce can't be a pitcher. Bruce can't. No, they let him do everything. And, you know, he had to overcome the obstacles that he had. And it was amazing to me that when he decided to tell people in college that he had cystic fibrosis, nobody knew. Okay. He decided that in 1988, he was going to tell people he had cystic fibrosis, and um, it changed his life. He was at John Carroll. He ended up being in the United—I don't know if you remember, but during Sunday football, United Way used to always have do a feature on somebody. My brother was one of those guys, okay. and what was really cool was he was—Bruce had just graduated from John Carroll, and he wanted to go to law school, and Gordon Heffron, who was at, um, who was at Society at the time— saw my brother because my brother was working for United Way through John Carroll and they do this loaned executive program and the people would go from you know business to business and say hey this is why you should donate a little to the United sure. Way in every paycheck well they would show the movie and the speaker would come out normally it would be a loaned executive from any law firm or someone in town 
in this case, you just saw the movie My Brother Walks Out. So my brother was the one that did it at Society at the time, and Gordon Heffron met my brother, and next thing I know, my brother's working for Society. And he was like one of the first guys in the country that was doing 401ks and wow. helping people put that stuff together uh, with Society at the time. And then he ended up leaving to go work for this company called Manny, excuse me, Manning and Napier. And, um, but that, that's just kind of my brother's story. But, you know, now since he's been gone, we've just been doing a ton of stuff with fundraising and yeah. trying to find a cure. And so, again, when I said, you know, they used to believe that you were only going to make it from eight years old to 10 years old. Now we're talking about geriatric care. And we're going from this killer of a disease to a drug maintenance disease. That's what we're hoping for. We're not there yet. There's still money and work to be done. But it all started with Kaleidico. Now the FDA just approved a bunch of new drugs, and it's helping out so many patients with cystic fibrosis. So that if it's not a death sentence when you find out that your kid has CF now. Well, when I hear you talk about your brother, I can see, you know, to put you on the analyst couch, I mean, the incredible reverence that you had and, and just... I don't, was it hero worship? I mean, Big Brother, nine years, you're, you're senior. Yeah. Uh, that's enough to put them up on that status of, like, this guy can do no wrong. But to know that he was battling <clears throat> through what he was battling through and being such a warrior, wow, impressive. But I never knew it. I just knew he was taking an aerosol once a day. <laughs> wow. uh, it really hit me. All these thoughts hit so me. Yeah, when did you really come to grips with this? Um, uh, and are we talking about just the last couple of years of you his know, life? It was, he decided to have a lung transplant and it just okay. it didn't work. And, but when they opened him up, they were like, these are some of the worst lungs they had ever seen. So, because he was 46 and didn't have the drugs that we had now. And, um, and that was a, a horrific battle. And that also led me to want to do stuff for Life Bank because okay. my brother was a recipient and I do a ton of stuff for them. And when they call, I'm like, how fast can I help you? So this is your homage to your brother. Yeah. And, and it's, it's actually... The, the stuff we do with cystic fibrosis, so we've got the Bruce Baskin Golf Classic at Firestone and um, IMC, um, IMC Chef's Fantasy every year or whatever they need, you know, I, I try to help out. But the one thing that really hit me the most was at the end, and you know, my brother would have never even known that I did any of this stuff after the fact, was the fact that someone passed away in Cincinnati and gave my brother, I, there, there, I had two choices when my brother died. I could either say, wow, I can't believe someone would ever do transplant, or I can embrace the fact that my I had six months more with my brother than maybe I would have had. Who knows if he would have because made it the next day. Because of this person. Because of this person. And, I, I mean, you know the story, too. Yeah. It's this unbelievable personal story of, of a donor who was in Cincinnati who I walk in on January 2nd of 2005 into the G6 waiting room at the clinic, and I'm sitting there, and I turn around, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's Katie Rossborough who was your producer for a long time and still works at, at Fox Produces 8. produces Riz's show. And yes. does Riz's show. And I saw Katie, and Katie and I were sitting there, and we just started talking. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, God, my brother's having a transplant. And she's like, um, oh, my God, my dad's having a transplant. And I was like, wow. And so we were talking, we were talking. And then I go, I'm going to go talk to my family. And she went to go talk to her family. And then we came back together, and we started talking again. And and I go, oh, my God, it's almost time for the transplant. She goes, oh, my God, it's almost time for the transplant for us, too. I go, where are the organs coming from? She goes, Cincinnati. I go, oh, my God, it's the same donor. So Katie's dad and my brother, you know, and now our families were linked together forever. And no matter what happened. And so, uh, it, I, like, I get chills thinking about that I moment. I looking, right <laughs> looking at Katie talking about that moment. And um, so, um, you know, I just, I learned a lot in that G6 waiting room. And I'm sure Katie learned a lot in there, too. And um, I, you learn a lot about people. And it's not a place you, you, you want to be there initially for that transplant. But if you're there more than a couple of weeks or a couple of months, like we were, you gotta you, know, you thank the Lord for every day you got. I think mm -hmm. on that. And so with that though, I always thought there's a guy in Cincinnati or somebody that lost a loved one that I never met, never knew. Yeah. And so if I can say be a hero, be a real hero, be an organ donor every day. Yes. And I help someone become an organ donor. Someone even to think about it. Yeah. You know. Uh, Stephanie Tubbs. You want to talk about a hero? Stephanie Tubb Jones was a hero because. She decided she would be an organ donor, and organ donation in the African-American community prior to her death was not very prevalent, you know? And after the fact, it's called the Stephanie effect at LifeBank. And, you know, you think about, well, let's see if Stephanie just affected one or two people. That could be 16 lives that she could affect immediately, not to mention all the other things that happened. Wow. And because Stephanie was an organ donor... Um, pastors were going back into churches saying, hey, maybe we should be an organ donor. Wow. And the uh, the 
number of African Americans that are now organ donors, thanks to Stephanie Tubbs Jones, was like over a thousand percent more than when she was. And when you think about that and the number of organ donors that happened, she has maybe perhaps saved generations of people, not just like one or two families affected. We're talking about generations of people, all because Stephanie did something selfless or her family did too, mm-hmm. by saying, I want to be an organ donor. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Well, that's incredibly uplifting to hear. That's part of her legacy. She had another legacy, just being a, right. a public servant and, and and doing what she could for you know Northeast Ohio, but to know that she's hooked up or linked in that respect, it gives she, me a newfound respect. She may have done more her. in her afterlife than she ever did while she was alive, and just because she was an organ donor. Yeah. And how many families she makes happy today or how many kids are being born today because she was an organ donor and a pastor said something at a church and somebody, and they were saying at the time when they would go to families, yeah. you know, when they, when they were passing, they would say, would you like to be an organ donor? Uh, you know, would you like your loved one to be an organ donor? And they were turning to each other saying, well, what did Stephanie do? And they were saying she was an organ donor. Then I want to be an organ donor. It, it's just, it is an amazing uplifting story that t- just says, like there are no words for what she did. Yeah. No words for it. And she, you know, what's crazy is she'll never know, but I know her son knows and her family knows and how important she was, not only in politics and what she did in her regular life, mm-hmm. but what she did in the afterlife. It's amazing. Well, buddy, I, I commend you for what you've been doing for organ donation and obviously for uh, cyst- cystic fibrosis because it's, you know, it's so close to your heart and uh, people need to know the the other side too as well you've yeah. had a great story a good a good career that's continuing to get even greater as we go on where do you think you're going to be in 10 years i don't know maybe on a beach somewhere <laughs> i'd like to be on a beach i you know i um i'm starting to coach more hockey than i was doing before i don't i don't really know i've been doing more play-by-play too um, okay. i'm working for spectrum um i'll be doing some more stuff for spectrum coming up with state basketball um i don't know i don't know where the next road is i don't know i love working here um, my family at the radio station is phenomenal and you know, I, I love what I do. I just don't know. There are just some days you wake up and you're like, I don't know what's next. And this might be one of the few times in my life that I don't know what's next. I don't know where we're going and hopefully I'm on the radio for a long time and that'll be a beneficial job or you just never know. Here's to you taking the right turn at that fork and road. Well, thank you. And thank you for helping me drive that car in the beginning. Cause <laughs> if it wasn't for you and trades and, and Danny, I don't. I probably wouldn't have got a good start in this business. So I appreciate you. Always will. You bet. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Awesome. Thanks once again to Andy for sitting down and the nice chat. Great to catch up with Andy. And also thank you to you for your listening uh, over all these so many weeks that we have done the Tellich Talks podcast going on one year now, and it's been a pleasure, certainly on my part. And as always, I ask if you could subscribe, rate, and uh, give us those five stars on Apple Podcasts. That certainly is a big, big help. And if you like something here, both on this interview or in the archives, please uh, share and uh, pass the word along. I certainly would appreciate it. And until the next time we see you, we'll catch you up again on another edition of Telex Talks. We'll see you then.